What's wrong with decrying America for systemic racism? And why does it make white Americans feel so good to condemn themselves as so bad when it comes to race? And why have the standard solutions to the hardships of America's black communities, like the Great Society, public housing, and affirmative action, how come those have done more for white psyches than for black lives? We will explore these questions and more on today's episode of Independent Conversations. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. I'm Graham Walker, coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We're just across the bay from San Francisco, and we gave, aim to give you a kind of independent outlook on the events of our era. Uh, and today, we're going to tackle some of these tough questions with the help of noted literary scholar and cultural analyst, Dr. Shelby Steele. Welcome, Dr. Steele. Thank you. Good to be here. It's, it's a thrill to have you, really. Um, you know, uh, people probably know of you, but for those who, who don't know some of the pithy pieces, let me just remind folks that uh, Dr. Steele is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, uh, written often for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harper's. I guess you're still a contributing editor at Harper's. Is that right? I believe so. Lucky them. <laughs> um, you won the National Book Critics Circle Award for your book, The Content of Our Character, A Vision of Race in America. You won a Bradley Foundation Prize for Outstanding Achievement. Uh, your PhD is in English from the University of Utah, if I've got that right. And boy, you have a number of other books, such as <clears throat> not only the one I mentioned, but uh, 20, 2007, White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era. Uh, another one, 2014, A Bound Man, <clears throat> Why We Are Excited About Obama and Why He Can't Win. So, uh, <laughs> I got and, that one right. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of others, and a bunch of others. So, you, you've been pretty busy on the score for a long time, haven't you? I guess so. I guess so, now that you mention it. Yeah. I mean, as a literary scholar, <clears throat> you know, people might wonder, well, how did you start thinking about race in America if your whole thing was literature? And I think somehow there are connections that are not obvious to me on the surface, right? Uh, yeah, there, there are connections. It's, um, Race is a human problem. Uh, literature studies race. It examines it. Shows us uh, um, shows us how human beings get caught in these dilemmas and and uh, what motivates people and so forth. So, for me, it was a sort of natural coming together of things. Uh, literature still is my uh, my default intellectual mm. uh, interest. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> I was wondering, as I was looking at your uh, long uh, history of intellectual production, <clears throat> whether it was a shame that you got pulled away from the study of literature, but you didn't entirely get pulled away because as I look at your most recent work, this remarkable documentary film, What Killed Michael Brown, there's a concept of poetic truth, which we're going to come back to in a minute, but I have a feeling that that came to you through your literary insights. Yes, yes. Um... It involves the concept of license uh, with language and reality. And uh, I have found that uh, in thinking about race to be uh, extremely uh, useful. You uh, were pretty much involved in the civil rights movement and the war on poverty back in maybe the 70s. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did in those days that kind of got your career going and got you thinking? Well, I have to say, I grew up in a in a family. My mother and father met 
uh, as founding members of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, back in the early 40s. Um, and so I was a core baby. I grew up in the civil rights movement and, and um, um, my family, every, I mean, every night they were, they were at meetings and, and we were at marches wow. on the weekend. And, and uh, so I remember when, when uh, uh, Martin Luther King was just a newcomer and we wondered if he'd really work out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had, that is sort of the world I came out of. I, um, I read a good deal about it and uh, had certain heroes as a kid, James Baldwin, Malcolm X, others. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver was a great writer, uh, one of the first class writers, I think, of that era. Uh, and so I, the, the involvement just continued all the way through uh, high school through college. I was uh, founded the civil rights group on my campus at uh, Little College in Iowa, Co-College, mm. um, and continued in, in that way. Um, and I say indulged, indulged in the Black Power movement for mm -hmm. a good little while and sort of examined that as a, as a point of view, as a way to look at America. Um, I sort of uh, worked for years in, in government programs, uh, war on poverty programs. You were in East St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah. Tell yeah. us just briefly uh, about Illinois. East St. Louis. Yeah. Um, quite an experience. Uh, so it's always been something I've been engaged with and uh, traveled a good little bit in Africa. Uh, I'm very interested in Africa. Some of my first uh, publications were on, uh, on the literature that began to come out of Africa hmm. uh, in the late 60s and, and, and all the way up to today where it's now, it's now prolific and, and international. Your father was quite a remarkable character. <clears throat> he was, I think, the son of a man who had been born into slavery. Your grandfather, have I got that right? My grandfather was born in slavery, mm -hmm. yes. And then um, your father lost both his parents when he was a very small boy. Right. He was, uh, he was about 12 when his uh, mother, uh, when his father died, excuse me, he was eight when his father died. He was 12 when his mother died. Wow. Uh, and made it, had to make it on his own pretty much from that point on. Uh, again, he had many siblings, but they, he was the youngest and they were in as bad or worse shape than he was. So he was pretty much on his own uh, from the time he was 12. Made his way to Chicago on his Made own. Made his way to Chicago. It took him six months to get from Kentucky to Chicago. Uh, and that didn't work out. He first went to Detroit, and then that didn't work out. Then he went to, ended up in Chicago, where he spent pretty much the rest of his life. And, and that's where I was born. Hardworking man. Very hardworking man. Determined. Um, um, I, I can't, uh, you know, get emotional. I can't uh, talk enough about about him. Uh, he was, uh, I was lucky. I don't think I'll ever be in his league as, as, a, as simply as a human being. Uh, he was, he, he truly was marvelous. And people who knew him knew that. Uh, and he was, he was enormously respected uh, in our, uh, in our community. Uh, as was my mother, along with him. She, uh, she too was a remarkable mm. woman. Um, my father had a third grade education. My, my mother had a master's degree from the University of Chicago. She Whoa. was white. 
Oh my, um, that was quite a, quite a pair. Quite a pair. And uh, uh, I can't say enough about either one of them. They, they both were, uh, were truly remarkable people. Uh, but they, they sh together they did things. The school I went to was segregated and horrible and, and uh, abusive to, to black children. And um, both my parents organized all the other parents. They boycotted that school. They ultimately got rid of the superintendent, the principal, several teachers. Wow. We built, a, uh, built another school, uh, all as a kind of outgrowth of this commitment to civil rights and equality uh, and, and so forth. They, they caught hell for it. They, they uh, uh, were pilloried in the, in the Chicago Sun-Times and other newspapers, but um, they were two, the two strongest people I've ever known. Something happened to the civil rights movement, or maybe not to the civil rights movement, but to those who claimed the legacy and the mantle of it. And you were totally on board with the civil rights movement, but the heirs of the movement today who advocate uh, uh, systemic racism and so forth, you seem to be kind of a nemesis of that group. <clears throat> How different your perspective must be from what you thought it was going to be when you were younger? Uh, yes, uh, it's a little heartbreaking to be to be honest about it. Um, we won the civil rights. There's there's certain tools that groups have when they come out of oppression. We came out of oppression in the 1960s. We won a civil rights bill, Voting Rights Act, open housing law. Um, America said we were wrong and we were going to, we may not do it perfectly, but we're going to try. Uh, things turned around. At that moment, we as Blacks became challenged to then enter the game, enter the society, and prove ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have been oppressed for four centuries, that is an, an extremely difficult challenge to face. You, it's intimidating. Um, uh, it causes enormous anguish, mm. not a feeling of excitement and happiness, but ooh, what are we going to do now? We've always relied on somebody else. That's the nature of oppression. How do we do it? <clears throat> One of the things groups do, I'm writing about this now, is that uh, in, in situations like that is go backward and say, no, 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 you think we're free now because of all that legislation. No, <clears throat> we're really, uh, it's still here. We still have to organize that. Racism is everywhere. It's not just an isolated incident here and there. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's systemic. It's, it's uh, broad-based, it's invisible, uh, but it's, it's like the air itself for Blacks and it holds us down. And so we need to continue to be treated as victims who are, <clears throat> who are taken care of, who are lifted up by the larger society's desire to redeem itself from what mm -hmm. it did to us. Mm -hmm. Keep that sort of symbiosis going. Uh, and so a lot of what comes out of Black America today, none of us back in the 60s foresaw this, that we would reinvent racism rather than do the harder work of attacking freedom, seizing freedom and using it. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> and so that's where we, we've, it seems to me, made a profound mistake that I'm sure we'll correct at some point. But the cult of victimization <clears throat> appeals not only to those who hope to you know, be done right by, but also to those who feel guilty. And that is kind of how the poison of uh, the last few decades has affected our society on race relations, if I understand your argument correctly. Yes, that's the other side of the symbiosis is that when America admitted to, I mean, think about it, admitting that, yeah, we, we truly oppress these people for 400 years. Terrible. We, we denigrated them in every way. We dehumanized them. We debased them. We, all of our culture symbolism reflects our belief that they're inferior. Uh, we denigrate everything they believe in and everything they do. And then you suddenly have to admit that that happened. That really, to me, that's in, in a sort of social cultural way, that's the biggest event in the 20th century for, for America is the, this great, what I call great confession. Mm -hmm. uh, we, yeah, we did it. And of course, Johnson, President Johnson, <clears throat> right away uh, launches the Great Society, the War on Poverty, affirmative action, school busing, public housing, expanded welfare payments, on and on and on. Well, once, oh, you've, con once you've confessed your guilt, then you have to do your, your restitution. And that was perhaps right. the psychology of the Great Society. That's exactly right. You have to, you have to pursue redemption in some way. And so America spent, the last figure I heard of was $26 trillion since in the 60 years since the passage of the Civil Rights Bill on programs to uplift Blacks. And, and, and uh, the irony, of course, is that Blacks are farther behind whites today than they were 60 years ago when they were, when they got nothing from the government and we're actually closing that, narrowing that gap between blacks and whites. Yeah, you had some data that in one of the things I saw you, you produced, which said that from 1947 to 1960, that the black poverty rate dropped during that period from 87% to 47%. And there was really no black underclass to speak of uh, up until, you know, the, the 60s got going. That's right. Uh, the, the black underclass is almost entirely uh, the, the, the spinoff of all of this, what I call to just, just sum it up in a phrase, white guilt. Uh, and I don't mean, when I say white guilt, I don't mean a feeling of guilt, of guiltiness. Some whites feel it, some, some, some don't. It's, it's, it's an abstract sort of idea. But white guilt is the terror of being seen as a racist. Mm-hmm. Because if you're seen as a racist, you lose all your moral authority and you're weak and vulnerable in the world. And whites couldn't stand the thought of that. And so they began, they dumped programs and favoritism and preferences and everything they could possibly dump on blacks to sort of win back the moral authority they had lost by confessing to this, this long history of oppression. And those social programs then have the effect, inadvertent effect of depriving uh, African-American citizens of a sense of agency to the extent that they become dependent. Is that how that yeah. worked? 
this is the most pernicious thing and one of the most pernicious things in the, this whole story of race in America. As whites were trying to redeem themselves from this shameful racist history. In order to do that, they, they took responsibility for black development away from blacks onto themselves and said, look, you're inferior. We don't have faith that you can make yourself equal to the rest of us. We don't have faith in you. That's why we're gonna give you all these programs, all racial preferences of every kind today, you know, diversity, inclusiveness, uh, it just never ends the, the white guilt sort of taking over responsibility for black development. So what is what happens in 60 years? Blacks don't develop. They get public housing, they get schools, they get all sorts, they don't develop. It's tragic. Because they've, they don't see themselves, they see themselves as victims of racism rather than as people uh, in charge of their own lives. The, that's the worst thing you can do because that's what steals their humanity away. That's mm -hmm. what dehumanizes them. So uh, and you, when we look at black leaders today, they break my heart. They all they they're just constantly in line asking for more, more of these sort of white guilt programs, as I call it. We if we don't get more resources in the inner city, we'll never be able to compete. Well, can you get a piece of chalk? and apply it to a blackboard, then you've got the resources you need to educate the children in front of you. Uh, but when you probably think do of better than the internet victim, you think your fate is in the hands of others, then you, you, uh, you languish. And we're languishing now. And we should be competing. The mindset of being a victim um, creates a kind of tinderbox of potential anger, of course, as well as conflict. And it was into that tinderbox that some of these recent public events uh, into, into which uh, matches were thrown at in the instance of Michael Brown's uh, death in 2014 and then George Floyd's death last year. Um, there was an explosion, but the explosion was made possible by this mindset of victimization and by all these sort of of inadvertently harmful policies that were adopted through this process you just described. So you set out a couple of years ago to try and make sense of Michael Brown's killing, which until George Floyd seemed to be the emblematic instance <clears throat> of continued black suffering at the hands of white power in America. And uh, you've recently produced a documentary film. Uh, the title of it is? What Killed Michael Brown? And when did you release that? Not long ago, right? Last fall, um, four months ago. I had the privilege, thanks to you, your generosity, of looking, uh, viewing the whole thing yesterday for the first time. It is a remarkable film. Um, well, and what you. I found especially helpful is that you took the incidents <clears throat> around Michael Brown's death, August 9th, 2014, 18-year-old young man killed by a 28-year-old white officer, Darren Wilson, those are the bare facts of the case. You, you examined that and saw that the reaction to it actually illustrated all the problems you've been describing here in race relations and the psychology of white guilt. Uh, and would it be helpful? Would you mind if I showed part of your trailer uh, for that film? 
No, what I would not I? mind. <laughs> okay, so we're going to stop and pause, and everybody joining us is going to see. Uh, my assistant is going to trigger that, and here we go. A black boy dead in the street, shot by a white policeman. This was an execution. This was an assassination. It was four and a half hours before they finally removed the body. It's like they left the body out there to, as a warning for us. To this day, there are people who blame Ferguson Market for Michael Brown's death. I want your hands all the way up because this is how he was when he got shot, yeah. when he got assassinated, yeah. when he got murdered. Everybody gets to go home, we stay black, homie. Ferguson is a microcosm of this country. White cop, black kid, absolutely race. Race played a significant part of the reaction. What happened in Ferguson was more about America, the very same America that would explode in 2020. Where every black was George Floyd, and every cop was Derek Chauvin. You can do better next time by doing the right thing. Since the 60s, whites have lived under the accusation that they are racist. Ferguson really became kind of a destination city for successful African Americans. We were not part of white flight. No. Some people want to be angry at someone. Michael Brown had tried to buy cigarillos the night before with pot. He put his hands in the air, but the officer still approached with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots. Some witnesses have also said that they actually saw you stand over him. That would be incorrect. What did you see in that face? Aggression. There was nothing. It was like hollow just looking through me. What demons might have been at work within him and to make the final fateful charge against Officer Wilson? America's original sin is not slavery. It is simply the use of race as a means to power. When truth becomes the lie, and when the lie becomes truth. If Michael Brown valued his life, he wouldn't take the chance of risking it. Was it really racism? that killed Michael Brown. What killed Michael Brown? <clears throat> wow. I mean, the bare facts were in dispute for a while, but then they weren't. Uh, the, yeah. the young man uh, had uh, been in an altercation. He had hit the police officer in the head. Is that right? And yes. then he was go running away from him, and then he headed back toward him in an extremely menacing way. Uh, and were his hands up while the police officer shot him, begging for mercy or not? The Every witness says that there was not a single witness who was actually on the scene says that his hands were up. He, his, he balled up his fist and charged the policeman. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> after he had been shot once. And um, the policeman kept telling him, please stop, stop, stop. And, and uh, he never, he didn't. Um, you have to, to note that Michael Brown was over, weighed over 300 pounds. He was an extremely powerful young man. He mm. was not as though he, there was no real threat. There was a, there was a threat. It, it was clear to everyone there that uh, that um, he died by provoking the policeman into a position where 
he had to fire out of self-defense. Now, ultimately, even the Obama Justice Department agreed that there couldn't be charges brought against the officer, right? The Justice Department, the FBI, two different grand juries investigated this, this case. None of them found a single shred of evidence to suggest that, um, uh, that there was a racial motive uh, that that uh, the policeman provoked it. Um, not one shred of evidence in four different thorough, because all of those investigations wanted desperately to find evidence of racism. That was their, their goal. But even, even with that, given that bias, uh, they were unable to do so. Um, so it became a, even a bigger fight uh, and the, the fight in that sense, again, any, what I've learned over the years, um, people will dispute this, but it's just a, a life of observation that any time people pick up the issue of race, it is in the interest of power. Mm -hmm. Race is, is nothing more, nothing less than a means to power. Uh, and so the government was looking for power. They wanted Michael to be a victim of racism. That justified 60 years of political liberalism in America, of giveaway liberalism. Uh, and, so, and so that's what they were after. That, the, the, their hope riding on this young 18-year-old boy was that he would be a source of enormous power. And he was. George Floyd was. Trayvon Martin was, uh, and uh, it, it has become a source of power in American life. It's, it is uh, touching every single institution in American, in American life. What's fascinating about the Michael Brown case is that <clears throat> even though pretty much everyone responsible acknowledged that <clears throat> the officer wasn't guilty of what he had been claimed of just outright racist murder, nevertheless, uh, somehow uh, Michael Brown had to be emblematic. It was, people insisted that he be upheld as somehow the poetic embodiment of all this oppression, <clears throat> even though he himself didn't seem to fit the profile. Uh, and you said that uh, uh, Eric Holder, um, actually uh, the attorney general at the time under President Obama, uh, he held, uh, he couldn't hold the police officer responsible, but he decided to use a different technique. You said he followed a formula of power that had been developed by Al Sharpton and others and ultimately made Ferguson pay, even though he couldn't make Darren Wilson pay. What does that mean? Well, what, what it means is that, that um, people like Sharpton and, and so their, their goal, again, in their pursuit of power, and they are about they are about really nothing more and nothing less than, than sheer political power. And, and uh, they're in American society, uh, race is, is an extreme, uh, is a rich, rich source of power. If you can find blacks who are victims and whites who are oppressors, then it seems as all these incidents seem as though America keeps duplicating its old sickness of of uh, white racism and black victimization. Uh, and therefore, because I'm on the side of the black victim, power should redound to me. So President Obama went, and Eric Holder 
ended the whole Ferguson mess in pursuit of power. Uh, and um, no doubt they, they won some of that power. Uh, whites were really on the defensive. And, and uh, uh, even though the truth was on their side, they lost the argument. Mm -hmm. And we now today, a few years later, uh, are, are asked to accept that racism in America is not isolated incidents, but is systemic, is, is, is prolific, is everywhere. Uh, and Michael Brown and, 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 uh, 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 and Trayvon Martin and Freddie Gray and any number of other young blacks killed by white policemen are evidence of this systemic racism. Why do we, why do we have to, why do we want race, racism to be systemic? Because it's power. Mm -hmm. And systemic racism, I, under the flag of systemic racism, I can demand that corporate America change its, its ways. I can demand that professional football allow this. I can, I can uh, that universities transform themselves in, in, this, in this way, that uh, churches, there, any institution in American life, I now have the power to get those institutions to change, and they all will because none of them want to be seen as racist. They have white guilt. Mm -hmm. And so white guilt, this is the symbiotic bond right. uh, here, the sort of sick uh, tie. Uh, and it's, it's, it's completely injuring America because the objective truth that Michael Brown was what exhausted every drug known was in his body uh he was uh, he had been in four high schools in four years he was from a broken home the, his father was abusive on and on uh those things have nothing to do with his death what had to do with his death was that the white, there was a white policeman who was a racist well if that's america and that's what the political left points to in in, in america today and that is uh, an extremely powerful point of view. Um, <clears throat> that symbiosis <clears throat> of guilt and power uh, generated the support for the multi-trillion dollars you just mentioned a few moments ago. Among other things, we've mentioned the Great Society, <clears throat> public housing, for example. You said at one point that the, the new liberalism as opposed to the old liberalism. The new liberalism coming out of the 1960s created, created the world that killed Michael Brown, and it was always more about assuaging white guilt than developing blacks. So, for example, you told us in this documentary, which I highly recommend our viewers watch, uh, that St. Louis uh, had a thriving black aspiring community and black middle class community. There was a high level of home ownership, as high as white neighborhoods. Um, but it didn't look good and whites were feeling guilty. And so public housing was decreed. Uh, the neighborhoods were bulldozed. Instead, was put up these horrible concrete monoliths, uh, notoriously known as the Pruitt-Igo projects and many, many, many others like them around the United States. The Pruitt-Igo, of course, project has the particular appeal of having been, uh, had to be dynamited. Uh, was it finally in the 1980s, I think it was, it was dynamited? 70s. In the 70s, because it was had become such a horrible infestation of degradation for its inhabitants. Um, but you, you have argued that public housing was a form of socialism which created 
the very damaging conditions that supposedly it was to make up for. How did that work? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you, you, you couldn't have done a worse thing to Blacks uh, than, than something uh, about public housing. And the worst feature of, of public housing, like Pruitt-Igo and Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago, where I grew up and so forth, um, the, the terrible thing about that, again, is the government is really interested in winning back the moral authority, the legitimacy, and the power that it lost when it confessed to four centuries of racism. And so therefore, the last thing they care about is Black people. Black people are simply pawns in a scheme of white redemption. And white liberalism is about the redemption the, uh, of, of whites in America and of the legitimacy of our government. But specifically redemption through the creation of programs that deploy power to right. control economic resources for the ostensible good of the recipients, but their actual harm. That's right. Um, because when they took over, the, the housing that Blacks had in St. Louis, very much like the housing I grew up in, my father was a part of, was created entirely by Blacks. Uh, it, was, it was really a transition neighborhood. They were on their way up. The minute the government, the civil rights bill passes, the government jumps in, says, no, you'll live here in this beautiful high rise we've built for you. Um, the evil, the pernicious, aspect of that was white America said to black America, we have no faith that you can agent your own, uh, your own overcoming. We have no faith in anything about you except your inferiority. We believe liberalism is based on a deep faith, not in black agency and self-help development, but in the myths of racism, that you're inferior and you can't do it without us. You won't, and it's unfair of us to withhold all of our vast resources from you because if we do that, uh, uh, then we'll be, in, we'll, we'll be in all sorts of, of, we'll be guilty. I think your we'll point is, is racist. Your point I think is, is not that uh, individuals and families and churches and whatnot didn't have a role to play in being charitable and helpful and so forth, but it was the centralized power of the state, which right. claimed resources and, and redeployed them. That's right. And you know that you know that that liberal power is at work when you, you see one thing. There is never they those policies, those programs never ask anything from black people. They don't care. So I'll give you affirmative action. You can go to, to, to the uh, university over your head. Uh, but I don't, I, I'm not going to ask anything from you. So affirmative action created a situation in America since the 60s where Blacks and universities have the lowest grade point average and the highest dropout rate of any student group in America because they were brought there and stuffed onto the campus uh, as examples of white innocence, not of black greatness, not of black overcoming, mm -hmm. but of how good white people are and, and so, how innocent they are and how they deserve to stay in power. 
And so, so it's an ingenious, white guilt is ingenious. It's absolutely in ingenious. Now we're getting a whole new cycle of it in the wake of George Floyd and so forth, that the insistence upon uh, white guilt <clears throat> and whites are now, and others, um, especially white Americans, seem to be driven by a compulsion to denounce themselves and to denounce the whole system of private property and free exchange, uh, the constitutional order, it's all to be trashed. The more vociferous they are about trashing it, um, the more righteous they feel, I guess. And if you don't mind, I actually have prepared this one clip um, that I found especially telling on this point uh, about white guilt and the, the, the kind of parasitical or symbiotic relationship. I'm gonna play this um, little clip from your a video starts right here. By implication, all of white America stood accused. The power here was literally enormous. Whites around the entire Western world hit the streets in protest against this murder. These whites seem to say, as an anti-racist, I am guilty of racism. But this confession of guilt, as with all whites, past and present, is also their proclamation of racial innocence. This desperation among whites for innocence of racism often presses America into bad faith solutions to racial problems. It's time to end the American experiment and then start all over again. I think that we have to burn it down. Do you think it's time to end the American experiment? Yes. This was the desperation that fueled the liberalism of Pruitt-Igo the war on poverty, affirmative action, school busing, diversity this and diversity that. This grab for entitlements continues to this day. These programs give white America moral legitimacy, or at least the illusion of it, even as they utterly fail to help the black underclass. These programs give white America moral legitimacy or at least the illusion of it, even as they utterly fail to help the black underclass. I don't know if anyone in America is saying this besides you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it needs to be said. Not that, um, I'm, not that I'm happy to say it. <laughs> no, I mean, I wish it weren't the case, but, but yeah. you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize there is this profound compulsion driving the self-denunciation of masses of people. Yeah. Uh, and you, yeah. you, of course, it's an inner compulsion, but it's also an external compulsion because if you don't, you know, fly the flag of self-condemnation, fly the flag of anti-racism, then you might be accused of racism. And then you might lose your job or, you know, one thing right. or another. Right. What a strange that's, that's, social psychology. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it is interesting, but the, the threat of stigmatization as a racist is one of the most powerful weapons. Uh, certainly is black leadership in America lives and dies by this kind of a weapon, this, this ability to, to manipulate white guilt. 
Um, and, and the left in America uses the term racism as though, and racist as though everybody in the world is, uh, qualifies. Um, and, and we can sort of, it's so bad, we can see them doing it. We can see the manipulation, uh, but they do it anyway. And it works anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, no white, uh, whites just simply uh, are in this, history has put them in a situation, circumstance uh, that is, uh, is undermining what is the, the broader culture. Uh, because if, if what, what terrifies me about white guilt is that it, it weakens the ability of white Americans to stand up for the principles that made America great in the first place. The principles that led us finally to end slavery, that led us finally to pass civil rights legislation. Um, but again, if in, in whites now would have, have this sort of gun to their head uh, and they, they're, people just sort of shake them down and um, get all sorts of little goodies. And because after all, America's a wealthy country. And so we can we can afford literally to give a, give away a lot of a lot of things, and we do. We can afford the luxury of insisting upon policies which will harm the intended beneficiaries and benefit ourselves. <laughs> that's right, and benefit ourselves. That's that is. That's you said exactly right. you said at one point the civil rights movement was a good faith movement, and BLM is a bad faith movement. That's not going to make you a popular character. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, I meant I meant that that Black Lives Matter is naked manipulation of white guilt. It has nothing to do with the development of Black America, which is which continues to be underdeveloped, and that underdevelopment gets worse every day. What does BLM BLM do? They chase down white people to shake them down. They're thugs. That's what they are. They don't speak for me. I, I don't have any uh, de- uh, any doubt about Black lives mattering or, or white lives mattering or Asian lives and, and so forth. Uh, you're raising a, what I call poetic truth, a, a, an illusion of, of racism that is, that is systemic and so forth because you're basically, excuse my word, you're pimping it. You're, you're selling it to, you know that Americans are afraid for their own innocence. They're afraid, they're insecure morally about, around race. And you seize, you go into that crack of insecurity mm-hmm. and you light a match. Wow. And, you, you, and, you, and they give you things. They say, put the match out, please. And, and they give you things and they let you kneel at the football game and they uh, uh, give you another, another government program, another, uh, another uh, bias, you know, uh, diversity and the, the terminology of the movement escapes me at the moment. Or maybe I just don't want to dignify it <laughs> by expressing it. But that's what Black Lives Matter is about. It's shaking down white people. Most black people are very have a very jaundiced view of that organization because they they say to themselves, "I grew up when there was real racism. What are you talking about? 
your obligation, given what came before the sacrifices that came before you, is to make something of yourself as an individual. That's your contribution to the race. That's everybody's obligation to the common good. It's not a, a group That's thing right. or a race thing at all. We all have that obligation to make the most of what you know God has given us and to benefit others, uh, you know, according to our ability, yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you, you have what you've hit on is that the human psyche is driven by poetry in a certain sense. That is to say, there's this poetic construction about black victimization and white guilt, which profoundly, it's, it's, it has enough elements of truth to be appealing, but it has a poetic mystique. And people respond to the poetry rather than to the facts. Uh, and uh, they get a lot of satisfaction out of responding to the poetry. Both, yes. both sides of the equations get, get satisfaction out of the poetry rather than the truth. Right. I thought well, the people are supposed to be driven by self-interest, but you say they're driven by this kind of strange psychic poetry. Well, it, it is uh, because it, 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 poetry gives you the illusion of illumination and emotional connection. Oh, now I've, I've find, I'm, I am illuminated by the truth. My parents, those old fogies who come from the earlier era, who, who didn't have the advantage, they're, they're stuck. Uh, but I'm illuminated by this truth that there is such a thing as systemic racism, that it's around every corner, that every black who wakes up in the morning is, is simply beset by a society that has holds them in contempt, that wants to beat them down. I believe that sort of dark story, that dark poetry, uh, mm -hmm. because it puts me in, it makes me a redeemer. Mm -hmm. It makes me, puts me on the side of redemption. I'm going to save those people um, as long as they admit that they're weak and helpless and they, that they need them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the slave owners did not go that far. The white segregationists did not nearly go that far. They didn't take over your soul and say, you have to be an inferior being in order to for to justify us, for us to justify ourselves. They didn't do that. We were better off with the segregationists I grew up with. I could talk to them. And they weren't gonna, they didn't give me an inch. The segregation, they said, well, what can we do about it? It's God's will. Mm. Everybody wants to be with their own kind. Too bad for you. Wow. Well, you, you quoted Robert Woodson at one point in your film saying bigotry is external, but being patronized is internal. I think yes. that's kind of what you're saying now. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Woodson said it very well. One is the one is actually you're saying and he's saying more corrosive than the other, even yeah. though it may be wrapped up in all sorts of platitudes and mea culpas and self-denunciations. The patronizing may be more corrosive than the it's, it's so bad. It. We are in a situation at this moment in American history where Blacks are asking their own people to believe in their victimization rather than in their freedom. That's where we're at today. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so we get nowhere. Years go by. We get in, how, how many more Black kids need to be shot? It, it goes on and on. Because our own leaders, our own people insist that, we, that you see us as victims. 
and that we think of ourselves as victims who cannot make it unless we uh, uh, someone else comes in and and does it engineers us agents us mm-hmm. us uh, 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 into a better a better life a better way of living we can't do it we're so the one thing black people need now is self possession mm. everybody needs that and that's that's the one thing america still won't will give because now in order to give black people self possession white america would have to say what frederick douglass wanted them to say 150 years ago leave us alone frederick douglass had it so right leave us alone because you'll come in here and you'll take possession of our of our problems in our life. And next thing I know, you want me to be a victim. And I've got to go around and be in this wealthy, free society where there's only a shred of racism left. I know I grew up in it uh, and act as though racism is still a profound problem for me. No, the, the problem for me is, is that I don't I don't know, haven't had experience with freedom. So in order to concede to others uh, a sense of their own agency and self-responsibility, those on the dominant side, in this case, maybe the white side, what they have to they would have to relinquish something to concede that power, that freedom, that agency to others. They'd have to relinquish all these things which give them the gratification uh, that they crave of being anti-racist, non-racist, assuaging their white guilt. They don't want to give that up. They would rather keep their clients in place than relinquish the the gratification of assuaging their white guilt. Is that how it goes? Absolutely. That's that's how it goes. Uh, uh, They're saying, I need my innocence more than I need you to do do well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm not... uh, uh, I'm not even going to ask you to do well because right. I don't have the moral authority to do that. Right. Uh, right. So, so we're we're at a terrible sort of stalemate. Okay. There. So we've got loads of questions coming in from people watching with us here today. Um, some of them I've asked the questions myself, sort of in my own words. Uh, simple question coming in. So I take it you're not uh, keen on critical race theory, Doctor Steele. <laughs> <laughs> True. Critical race theory is a wonderful example of what I'm talking about. It, it expands victimization. Uh, it, 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 uh, it says that when you demand for, for uh, uh, something from the, the larger society that, that you don't even have to explain it or justify it. You just should be given this and be given. So even, I mean, it just, it escalates the symbiosis that's already in place uh, uh, by keeping keeping whites in charge and blacks again in the position of having their hand out begging uh, in, in the name of their victimization. So it is uh, an ugly, uh, demeaning, dehumanizing ideology, but again, it is supported in a society that lacks the moral authority to look its people in the eye and say, stop it. Mm-hmm. You know better than this. Mm-hmm. You know better than this. You wouldn't. You don't want to do your. You wouldn't raise your own children by giving them this kind of license to indulge in the notion of themselves as victims. What as parents? What do we do? Is to say you may be victimized, but you're going to have to do this anyway. 
That's the nature of life, buddy. Grow up. That's actually love. That's absolutely love. Mm -hmm. I love my people. (laughs) I am so proud. I can see that. What other people have survived for centuries of brutal dehumanization have produced in one century, 20th century, one of the great literatures of the world have transformed music Mm -hmm. across the face of this earth. Mm -hmm. Black America. Uh, I'm I'm extremely proud. And and that is why I challenge my people. It's time for us to it's time for us to forget about racism and think about freedom. Become doers, not beers. You're not the first. um... Uh, back in the, I guess, 60s and 70s, a um, remarkable uh, man named T.R.M. Howard. We published a book last year by Independent Institute here called T.R.M. Howard, a doctor, entrepreneur, civil rights pioneer. You read this when it first came out. He was an interesting example of uh, a man who took freedom seriously and was responsible for himself and his own people and community, and he didn't want the government to do it. Absolutely. Hi- highly uh, recommended that, book. Yeah, those are... I came along before the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, and those were the kind of men I knew. Those were the kind of men who were involved in the Civil Rights Movement. Blacks were, were we were total self-respect, wanted total responsibility for our own fate, created black colleges, black medical schools. Black banks. Black banks, black businesses of every kind. Um, and we gave all that up on the, the promise by white America that they needed to redeem themselves more than help us develop. Mm -hmm. And we're still stuck there. So now blacks are out here undeveloped. No, the black family is all but destroyed. 75 children, uh, of black black children are all born out of wedlock. How how do you, how do you get out of a spot like that? Mm -hmm. And we think the answer is to just keep squeezing nickels and dimes out mm-hmm. of white America. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another question that fits right in, I'm, I'm afraid to say. Uh, Dr. Steele, what do you think about reparations and California Governor Gavin Newsom's task force to study and make recommendations on reparations for slavery? I don't think he'll have me on his task force. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> one, for one thing. Um, there's no such thing as, resp- as, as reparations. Here's one thing that, that, that I want to try to remember to get in. Mm. Uh, there's no such thing as reparations. White America, what's my challenge to white America? White America at some point is going to have to accept itself for what it is. White America did in fact, in earlier times, commit arguably the worst instance of human oppression ever. You, there's no, nothing you can do today, no program you can create, no reparations that you can come up with that are going to get rid of that. They're going to erase that from history. It is a part of history. It is also true that the Western world has created arguably the greatest civilization ever. That's also true. What whites need, must understand, you, like all people, are fallen. You have within you the capacity to do evil things if you're a human being. All human beings do. None of us escape that. We have to grow up, which means we accept 
that we have these dark potentialities within us. Racism is a reflex, boom. You, you, it, it, make, it presents itself before you have time to defend yourself against it. There it is. We need to know that and watch out for it. And in our struggle to be better human beings, we will make progress. We will let other people make progress. We will get ahead. We can't, it's, it's a fantasy to think you can buy your way out of four centuries of oppression. You can't. They don't have enough affirmative action programs. They don't have enough reparations. All you're doing is perpetuating the illusion that you can give somebody what's been taken away. You can't. And perpetuating that illusion is highly gratifying to the majority community. And even if it involves inflicting further damage on the intended recipients, uh, it still is highly gratifying to the dominant community. They won't give up their Pruitt egos, their diversity things, their affirmative action stuff. Their, yeah. uh, they won't give it up because it's, it's, it's too satisfying. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I'm a white American, I need to relinquish my insistence uh, that I've got to expiate through government policy and instead let people go back to being people. Yeah, that's right. Um, and when you see me coming, the worst thing you can possibly do is lower standards. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-Black. Therefore, I believe American institutions, when it comes to admitting people to them, when you see a Black student, a person come, you should raise the standards. That doesn't sound fair. You should raise the standards. I heard you. <laughs> uh, here's a, a, a simple. And nobody will believe I'm equal until you do. I'm afraid that's the way human psychology is, regardless of race. It's the way the race. world works. It's the way the world works, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe this is close to the final question here. How do we affect cultural change in impoverished communities? Do we, do we need to adjust America's political economy to help raise the floor or do we need a more local approach or what? What can we do to improve all this mess? Shelby well, Steele? The, the problem is in, in your use of the word we. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Meaning implying, no doubt, white America. Or the government. Or the government. Um, what we need to do is to get out of the way of, of those people. We need a society that's fair, that does not discriminate against people on the basis of their race. We need that desperately. We don't have that, we have nothing. Uh, but after that, we, we must leave people alone. I have faith in Black people. I know they can do it. I know they can find a way to do it. I'm, again, my father grew, had a third grade education. He had four children, and all of them had PhDs. He never got a dime from the government, from white guilt. Uh, and that's the attitude, that's where black pride, it seems to me, comes in. Black pride will save us if, we, if it enables us to stop giving our lives, putting our lives in the hands of, of other people. Uh, you take care of yourself, I'll take care of myself. And uh, that's the way it ought, it ought to be. Uh, I know some millennial-aged uh, young people who have really good hearts, and they might well be listening. Some of them may be watching right now. And I just imagine some of them saying to themselves, but, but Dr. Steele, shouldn't we be advocating for social justice after all? 
Isn't that a good thing to do? Social justice, after all, is social justice. We have the least racially discriminated, uh, the, the, the least racist society in the history of the world. I That's grew true. up when there was rank racism every, everywhere. Every aspect of my life was curt. I'll, I'll be here all day if I, if I <laughs> go down the litany of, of what racism did, what I saw it do. I'm telling you, we're free today. Black people can do anything they want, including be the president, including be the CEO of a major corporation. They can be uh, a great opera singer. They can, be, they can make the best uh, uh, rap music. They can do anything. Uh, they're no different than anybody else. They're, they're just the same. They're no better, they're no worse. We have to stop treating them as a special case because there's not a, that's not what it's about. They're, they're not a special case. It's you, the white America, that wants them to be a special case so you can throw nickels and dimes at them and make yourself feel like you're a great person. Mm-hmm. You're, you're for social justice. No, you're not. You are for the continued oppression of black people through the mechanisms and policies now designated social justice. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's pretty ironic. Um, It's remarkable to have a chance to talk to you about these things, Dr. Steele. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of all of our participants around the country who tuned in. It's been um, pretty amazing. And if they want to watch What Killed Michael Brown, what do they do? Uh, It's on Amazon. It's on Salem, uh, I think, right now. It's... uh, uh, you should watch out for it. It's going to soon be on many other platforms as well. But it's been on, on Amazon for a good while now. And you they can canceled at, it to begin with. Did they really? Yes, they did. Oh, man. How'd you overcome uh, that? People, people, the Wall Street Journal took a position on it. And so out of nowhere, we finally got, we got a phone call that said, uh, we're sorry we made a mistake. So they thought that it was somehow uh, unacceptable? They thought it was unacceptable. To, to, to contest the poetic... And it was a nasty letter, and they basically said they told us not to, to do any tricks to try to reapply. Oh, wow. Uh, that that uh, there was nothing we could do. Well, luckily we got the, the, the Wall Street Journal. I write for them sometimes. Uh, Good. Well, that sounds like they, Amazon. Uh, they Amazon. wrote an editorial on it and it got picked up. And so it's been now streamed on Amazon for about four months. It sounds like the Amazon folks themselves had a case of white guilt, which they thought sought to expiate by chiming in with the critical race theory agenda and canceling you. That's exactly right. Good grief. I've been canceled a lot. I'm, this is not new to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid that I, that is true. I've, I've been watching from afar, admiring your hard work. Um, so again, thank you, and let me encourage everyone to go uh, find and watch uh, What Killed Michael Brown. You can get the um, trailer on YouTube right now. Uh, very much worth seeking that out. Uh, Dr. Shelby Steele, thank you for joining us for our independent conversations. Will you come back some other time? I'd be happy to, and uh, uh, I appreciate your, your invitation to come this time. It's a pleasure so to see you. you. Let me remind all of our friends uh, that you can always turn to the Independent Institute for uh, resources on this and other subjects. Go to independent.org and you can find your fill of antidotes to some of the problems that we've been talking about today. So with that, goodbye, Shelby Steele. Goodbye, everybody. Take care and come back again for Independent Conversations.
Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.